that was an important clarification because the idea of having ADHD isn't something you grow out of. It's, it's really the treatment and the need for treatment. And that's part of the discussion here, too, is just because somebody is found to have the diagnosis of ADHD does not necessarily mean that they would need treatment. The treatment would be based on how much it's having an impact on their social or occupational or academic functioning. ADHD Rewired, episode 145. This is the show designed for those of us with really good intentions, but a slightly wandering attention. My name is Eric Tivers. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, coach, and speaker. The website is ADHDrewired.com. We know that starting is the hardest part, so let's get started. But first, let me tell you about this. The ADHD Rewired Coaching and Accountability Group is truly changing people's lives. I want you to hear some of the newest voices, the most recent graduates of the most recent coaching group. Our next group is just around the corner, and I want you to hear what just a few people from the most recent group said during our last session of the fall coaching group. I uh, was feeling very overwhelmed with everything that I had to do, with getting organized, not being able to get things done. And I gained a lot of tools and strategies to help me with that. I feel like for the first time I have confidence that I will do that. I also feel like I have a group of people who I can count on to help hold me accountable. Uh, the great thing is that you helped us sort of dream big and plan big and do our mind mapping and look at sort of the next few years or year and what's important, what are our priorities. And then having the accountability partners build the habits of breaking things down into actual manageable to-do lists and then following up with that. It wouldn't just be one big thing, oh, make a website. It would be one tiny little thing, oh, do this one little action step, do this one little action step. And tiny action step by tiny action step. I've accomplished so many more things in this group than I thought that I would. So that was a huge benefit to me. When you hear someone else talking about their issues or their, where they're stuck or what's challenging them, it's so helpful to hear someone else who's not me saying that. It's like it gives me brand new insight and it helps me move forward. I hear that and learn and it's not just head learning, it's heart learning, it's gut learning. One of the big takeaways from the group is realizing I'm not alone. Whether other examples match up perfectly to what I'm going through, I certainly see the similarities of just the need to have a different focal point, um, have a different you know, way to, to find support. So I think that this group is great for productivity and it is so much more than that. I have a tendency to think that things are going to transform my life and fix everything, even though I intellectually know that that's not going to happen. And so this group did not fix everything, but it completely transformed me in ways that I did not expect and I'm incredibly grateful for. Go to coachingrewired.com to learn more and to schedule your registration call with me. Registration begins December 19th and ends December 30th. Group starts January 16th. Go to coachingrewired.com and prepare to get your ADHD rewired. 
Did you miss last week's webinar, Productivity Solutions for the Time Blind? We're doing it again Monday, December 12th from 10.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. The last 30 minutes will be Q&A. But if you still want more Q&A, then join us December 13th at 12.30 p.m. for another live Q&A. And this one, the theme will be goal setting. Sign up for these and all live events at erictivers.com slash events. Join us for the first ever ADHD Rewired Talent Show, Friday, December 16th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. Central. Do you have a talent that you want to share? It could be anything from playing an instrument, singing, poetry, dance, origami, comedy, visual arts of any kind. Or do you have an awesome laundry folding trick that you can demonstrate? We're doing it on Zoom, so get your webcam or smartphone ready and show us what you got. Or just come and watch. Go to erictippers.com slash events to register. Hey everyone, I'm really happy that you're joining me for today's episode and I want to welcome all new listeners uh, and want to let you know if you are really new to the podcast, if this is your first episode or you just recently started listening, I want to let you know that last week's episode and again this week's episode is not a typical sort of format for the show. Um, Last week we heard stories from the Chad conference. This week, what you are about to hear is my at my local Chad chapter in a Grays Lake, Illinois, which is in northern Illinois, we hosted a panel of experts. So uh, it was myself and one, two, three, four uh, other people. We had a psychiatrist, a neuropsychologist, um, a therapist and a coach um, who were all joining us. So one of the things besides from it being a live recorded event uh, that was uh, that's different is that we also do field questions about kids. So, and I know that the, this podcast typically is focused on adults, uh, but I do think that you will find it interesting nonetheless. So I just wanted to let you know if you are new for so welcome, because I see that our, the, the numbers for downloads continues to grow and uh, we are on course to before the end of the year to hit half a million downloads. So to all of you who've been listening to new listeners, to people who have shared Uh, the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So let's get on with this episode. Enjoy. I want to welcome everybody to a live recording of the ADHD Rewired podcast that is occurring at my Chad chapter, Chad of Northern Illinois. We have a panel of experts uh, here today. Um, we have about 25-ish people in the audience right now. Um, and so we have a, a neuropsychologist, we have a psychiatrist, uh, we have a, an educational consultant, a therapist, um, myself. And I'm going to allow everyone to introduce themselves. Um, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Eric Tivers. Uh, I've been the, the uh, coordinator for this chapter uh, going on six years. And uh, so I guess this will be the official announcement that as of February, when we move to Gurney, I'm going to be stepping down as coordinator and moving into the role of professional advisor. Um, and Lisa, who is there on the end, is going to be taking over as coordinator. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Because, you know, the real coordinator, it's not just about facilitating meetings. It actually involves a lot of coordinating. Um, and I have ADHD. <laughs> and by the time, you know, it, 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 
they, they end, the medication has, has worn off. Um, you know, it's, um, I'm really excited to be able to hand, hand this off. Um, so I am a licensed clinical social worker. Um, I do therapy, I do coaching, and uh, I also have the ADHD Rewire podcast, which is available on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, anywhere where you can get a podcast. Um, so that is my story. I'm going to start at the end there, uh, Lisa, and then you are going to introduce, I believe, everyone else? Yes. And this is a reminder, speak right into the microphone. Great. Hi, everybody. You don't need a microphone to hear me. But I'm Lisa Alexoff. I am a therapist in Gurney. I work with children and adults and teens, primarily with ADHD, anxiety, other concomitant issues. And I also teach parenting classes for parenting the ADHD child and um, working with teachers who are working with ADHD. I'd love to give our guests a warm welcome today. So if you could give them a round of applause for volunteering their time. Um, we have Dr. Colin Ryan, a psychologist in Lake Bluff, Dr. Kaplan, a psychiatrist in Vernon Hills, and Jonathan Carroll, a uh, coach in Vernon Hills. Uh, I'm sorry, Northfield. So uh, we want to open up tonight's um, discussion so that you can ask any questions you have. But first, I'm going to let each of them introduce themselves and talk about what they do so that I don't have to. And um, if you have any questions, when you ask your questions, if you would like to direct them to one of us, that's fine. If you want to ask a general question, we'll all kind of pass it around and field it. Okay? Enjoy. Thank you. And, uh, and for anyone who has a hard time sitting for a long period of time, there's plenty of room in the back to pace around, and that's, that's fine here. Colin Ryan, psychologist. I'm also specialized in neural testing and psychological testing. So I got a packet together for everyone. Does everyone have one of these? Just go through it. Um, there's a couple up here in front. It can be blue or it's the blue manila or folders. I ran out of manilas. Feel free to grab one up here. Yeah, sure. I know I go to presentations a lot and see used events, and I'd like to have something hard copy with me. So I wanted to make something so you guys all had something. If you just open the first page, I just gave you some notes. You know, if you want to make notes, I put a page in there. A lot of times I go to these things, and they give me those small little notepads, the hotel one rooms, and I feel like I fill those up really quickly. Uh, the second page is really something important. It's kind of how I want to start out. It's called a medication log. The thing. I just want to, for, for listeners um, who will be hearing the recording, um, so what was provided here is a, it looks like a medical chart, um, and it has on the, the first page, um, it has to do with uh, your attendance. So just if, the best that you can describe for the, the listeners. Okay, the medication right log now. is very important because a lot of times, Dr. Kaplan's going to talk about this, I will have people come in, whether they're adults or they have children, it doesn't matter, and they'll sort of not have a good, and not everybody, but a lot of people, majority of people will not have really good history of the medication that either they are on or their, their child or student is on at that time. So it's really important, and this is something nice where you can, you know, I kind of put in a, when, he's, when did the person start it, the medication, the dosage. So when you go to someone like Dr. Kaplan, you can just pull it out and you don't have to have any sort of worries about remembering everything. It's also very important when you come to someone like me to get an evaluation that we do a robust history. And this is part of it. 
Okay? Does that make sense? Everyone see that? So that's something I wanted to put in there. I'm going to flip now, and the next thing I have is a letter just saying that there's going to be a lot here that I'm going to talk about. If you want to get a hold of me, feel free. Okay? If we go to the next page, does my child have ADHD? It's from the American Pediatric Association. And before I want you to come to someone like me or your pediatrician, I recommend people really follow something like this. Okay? And as you can see, it just covers a couple domains where you can actually observe your child or student in these domains. Once you think that they've checked off and it looks like they're actually going to fit the criteria, you can then kind of go to the next step, which would either be your pediatrician or someone like Dr. Kaplan. Okay? I would suggest a pediatrician so you can rule out anything organic. Does that make sense? Any questions? And on what that? do you mean by anything organic? Great question. Organic is anything that's physical that would be impacting psychological or physiological functioning. Dr. Kaplan's going to probably talk a little bit more about that because that's a little deep water for me. But I like to have a pediatrician say, the person is okay. They've had a hearing screen. They've had a vision screen. They've had their last physical updated. I can't tell you how many uh, people come to me and, and they don't even know the last time their child has had a physical or the student has had a physical. I'd like to rule that all out because I have seen um, two children in particular that had hearing issues and that wasn't ruled out. So of course I couldn't give a diagnosis of anything until that was ruled out. Does that make sense? And do you work just with children or do you work with I work too? across the board. Uh, the youngest you can test for an IQ is two years, six months, and I've done that. And the oldest I've done is 89, nine months. So I'm <laughs> all across the spectrum. Okay. All right, great. All right. So that's the first page. What I really want to focus on is the second page, which says evaluating your child. Okay. And this has a nice timeline in here that I really want to focus on. I put a step-by-step -step so you guys could understand sort of when you're going through the process and check some of this off. It is a long process. It can get very overwhelming, and you can hear a lot of psych jargon or medical jargon that gets confusing. So there's a couple steps, and we just kind of run through these really quickly. This is, the first step is kind of what you've already done. It's the, it's the precursor, what I showed you. Make some observations on your child. When we're looking at children, especially up to the age of 18, we're focusing, if you can vision or write down a triangle, we're focusing on three areas where we're trying to find this um, ADHD-like behavior. Is it in the home? Is it with peers? Is it at the school? Okay? So we're looking at all of those. Someone that has symptoms or behaviors like ADHD, you will see it in all three pockets. Okay? Trouble, we were talking about it before you guys got here, trouble socializing, trouble at school, and then trouble at home. And it will be consistently the trouble with following chores at home or following tasks at school. So here's a question I have about that. Please. So um, you get contacted, um, maybe there's a kid that's in trouble at school, so mom calls you or dad calls you, um, but mom and dad also have ADHD, and they don't really see what the big deal is. So how do you sort of assess that when that comes uh, into your office? Assess it as far as the parents having it or? Well, yes, to look at the whole family unit. And right. when you're asking for, uh, for the, the parents to sort of give rating scales and um, they maybe look at these rating scales and see, well, it's not that big of a deal. But they also don't ask their kids to clean their room or uh, do the chores because they're not really doing it either. Okay, that's where I think 
um, a lot of times that gets into the triangle. A lot of times it will, it will just be at the home or just will be at the school. But that's where we kind of step two. We have the teachers make the observations as well. So if I'm hearing one thing from the parent and another thing from the school, that's where it gets a little conflicting. And then I ask clarifying questions. Are there rules in place? What are the chores that this um, young man or woman has, a young student has? And the first thing, of course, is have they been through a physical, have you know, a medical doctor ruled out anything? And I also get a background, a history of the parents. So that's kind of why I made it, because I'm a little organized too, so I like to be organized, so I know this stuff runs genetically. So uh, that's why we got the folders. Thanks. Make sense? Okay, other questions? Keep going? Okay, so the step, second step is have your teachers, talk to the teachers. Third step is parents and teachers make a meeting about your concerns. You really want to do this in a step-by-step -step fashion because that's how school districts work. They want one, two, three, four. So if you are asking them this and then jumping around, they're going to lose you and you're going to kind of lose them a little bit. And we see that a lot. I see that a lot. There's people that make their money on being advocates to go to these IEP meetings. You can be your own advocate if you have a step-by-step -step process. And that's what I try to outline it here. Uh, number four is you can make an appointment with your child's doctor. Again, the pediatrician rule it out. Then you could go to a psychiatrist, and if the psychiatrist feels that there's an evaluation, you can hand them over to me. If you don't feel that that's what you want to do and you want to get an evaluation first to help clarify, you can do it also that way. There is no right or, way, right or wrong way to do it. There's different ways to do it. Does it make sense? Questions? No? Okay. You guys are an easy group. There's no questions? All right. Uh, number five is the doctor will obtain a history. That's what we're talking about. I'll get a very, very in-depth history. Probably an hour and a half I'll meet with the parent or the guardian of the, the student or the child, and I'll really do a robust interview from everything from developmental history, legal history, childbirth history, anything. Anything and everything. Okay. Um, number six, parents give a packet of info. So I will give the parents a packet. I will give them those questionnaires that you're talking about, and then we will start evaluating the process. By that time, I'll have a little clinical instinct because one of the best things I can do when evaluating from my perspective is behavioral observations. Observing the child when he's in the room, listening how the parents interact with the child or parent, listening how the child interacts back with the parent, and also, more importantly, because a lot of kids think of doctors as an authority figure, looking how the child interacts with me. So going back to if I see it in the child and I see it in the parent, I'm sort of taking a slower approach because I know that it's a systemic issue that attention might be a problem. So, so what I hear you saying is, is that you, while you use some of the, the quantitative assessment tools, you sounds like you put more stock in the qualitative sort of observational um, uh, components of that interview. I would say I'm a centrist. So okay. I would say I don't go too black and white. I like actuarial data, which is testing data, but I also appreciate clinical judgment. So I think both married hand-to-hand -hand is a good combination. Okay. Does that answer yep. that question? Yep. Okay. And clinical, uh, clinical judgment, the instinct of the clinician is what I'm referring to. Okay. Questions? No? Uh, seven, uh, step seven, the teacher, and usually I'm in touch with the school at this point, will return it to me or the parent. They will give it back to me. And then I will, once I have the parent and the teacher stuff, I will begin to then develop what I think a necessary evaluation process includes. And that also includes what we were talking about earlier, because I, what I'm seeing in the discrepancy, and this is really, really where I want to kind of pound home for you guys is, there's a lot of people who tell you they'll do testing. We want comprehensive testing. We want data that is actually evidence-based. So we want tests that are evidence-based. We were talking about it earlier. 
a lot of people say this test, this test, there's no clinical data or the data is a little, you know, kind of in the gray area. So it doesn't really say that we can give this test and the person's going to have it. So I like to include other things. Behavioral observations is one. Behavior inventories. So now we're assessing also not only cognitive functioning, but behaviorally what's going on with the student. As we know, ADHD is very comorbid, so that just means it comes together with other mental illnesses, anxiety or mental disorders or issues, whatever you want to call it, anxiety, depression, conduct disorder, oppositionality. Also, outside of behavior, you have sensory stuff that comes up. So we like to get a really comprehensive evaluation. Does that make sense? Questions? How important is that to evaluate for the, the uh, coexisting uh, disorders? I would say it's paramount so that you can really differentially diagnose. And that's just a big word of saying, does the person have this or that? I like to call it uh, ADHD usually comes with friends. Um, <laughs> you know, and they're not necessarily the friends that we want to have. Exactly. But it is part of the, the picture. So um, uh, looking at things like uh, anxiety disorders, uh, um, OCD, uh, even sleep disorders, uh, learning disabilities. And that's a really important piece to, to rule out, because especially if you're looking at medication, and uh, Dr. Kaplan's going to talk about that momentarily, um, you know, that's a really important piece, because if you have something else going on and um, you're not responding to medication, well, it might be that ADHD is not the only, uh, you know, not the only thing that we're traveling with. Or it is not the primary thing. Yeah. And I think that's where sometimes we get lost is, well, it's the primary thing because I'm experiencing it the most. I'm experiencing deficits the most. I'm you know, not being able to memory or my student is experiencing the most. I think getting the comprehensive review is, is, is key. Let me ask you one more question, and then I want to uh, pass the mic to, to Dr. Please. Kaplan. Um, what in sort of your nutshell explanation, what's the difference between a psychological assessment and a neuropsychological assessment? Good question. A psychological assessment is we're just looking at pathology with maybe a cognitive component. What does that mean? So pathology <laughs> means we're looking at other things going on. We're not just looking at the core components of the mind that make up motor functioning and executive functioning. So part of the brain that handles all that is the frontal lobe. Motor functioning, executive, right, so my car is, goes to the shop, what, what's going on here, executive Remembering functioning? Remembering tasks. How about that? Primary memory versus working memory. So short-term memory versus working memory. Make sense? Okay, my, my memory doesn't work very often. Is that what you're talking about? That is what I'm talking about. <laughs> all right, well, thank you. And we will, um, any questions right now um, about testing, assessment? Okay. Um, I'm Dr. Jeremy Kaplan. I'm a uh, child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist, and I have a private practice in Vernon Hills. Um, I'm also on faculty at Northwestern Medical School and Lurie Children's Hospital, where I teach medical students and also child psychiatry trainees in different areas. Um, I also do some school consultation work, so occasionally a school in the area will ask me to come in to help them um, assess a student or figure out issues regarding some uh, difficulties that they're having. Um, and I work on their behalf in those, in those cases. Um, my role uh, as a psychiatrist, as a medical doctor, is to be involved to help um, give the medication necessary to help treat someone's ADHD. And the reason that's an important factor is that when we're talking about the core symptoms of ADHD, by which I mean the inattention or lack of focus piece, the hyperactivity, and the impulsivity, and again, not everyone has all of those, but those, if anyone has any of those or a combination of them, 
medication is really the only specific treatment that has been validated to help in those areas. Notice that I said core symptoms because I'm not talking about things, for example, like helping with oppositional behavior, helping with anxiety, helping with um, executive functioning skills, all these other surrounding friends that come with that that really are more amenable to other kinds of therapy. But the thing about ADHD is that for those core symptoms, since medication is the only true validated treatment, I become integral in this process along the way often. So what does that mean, a true validated? Well, it means that, you know, that for a long time, um, there have been attempts to do other things besides medication, of course, to help with those core symptoms of ADHD because nobody would want to either give a child medication or take medication themselves if they felt that they could do something else easily, like just work with a therapist, for example, on learning how to focus better. But the problem is that doesn't generalize, which means if you go to a therapist and they say, okay, focus, 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 and they say, okay, now go to school, the person doesn't focus. That does, does not work. Um, and they've done so many studies on this issue because it's such a, a key factor that they've built up a lot of evidence over time that those things don't work. Even very, very intensive therapy programs where there's a lot of involvement of the parents, still, for those core pieces, it just doesn't generalize and you, you often need to use medication in those situations. Questions from you guys about this. I know that medication tends to be a, uh, an area with a lot of, a lot of questions. Um, would you mind having your question recorded? Yeah, my question would be, I have um, two children that I currently have on medication. I have six children and eight-year-old. What are the chances of them being able to kind of grow out of the ADHD? Yes. So for the recorder, the question was uh, two kids, uh, six-year-old and eight-year-old. Um, what are the chances that they can grow out of the need for the medication? And I think that, that was pretty good, by the that way. That was an important clarification because yeah. the idea of having ADHD isn't something you grow out of. It's, it's really the treatment and the need for treatment. And that's part of the discussion here, too, is just because somebody is found to have the diagnosis of ADHD does not necessarily mean that they would need treatment. The treatment would be based on how much it's having an impact on their social or occupational or academic functioning. Um, so I should say, first of all, before I answer the question, that I, I don't know you, I'm not the treating doctor of your kids, and so what I'm going to say here is a very general statement, it's not specific to your situation. Um, <clears throat> what makes the question difficult is that what we call ADHD is probably a thousand different things that all look the same or similar, but we can't tell them apart. It would be like if you said, well, I have a headache. You don't know well, why do you have a headache? There's so many possible reasons. So for one person, if they take Advil and it helps their headache, their friend might take Advil. It doesn't help their headache, but maybe their headache was from a different, totally different reason. So similarly with ADHD, it's hard to generalize to the whole population because if it's a thousand different things we can't tell apart, and if, if uh, some one person is in a situation where they don't need medication anymore, it doesn't really tell you what might happen to someone else. In general, though, I will say that school up until the end of high school is definitely the most difficult part for a lot of people with ADHD because they have to sit in these certain situations for long periods of time. They don't have a lot of options. You know, when you become an adult, theoretically, you can choose a job that involves a lot more moving around or you don't need as much direct focus. And 
those people are usually very successful in their jobs because they're usually very bright. But the problem is in school, you don't have that flexibility. So you're kind of stuck with it. So medication is pretty common all the way through high school for a lot of people. After that, it really varies. They used to say one-third, 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 so that one-third of people would still need medication uh, pretty consistently as adults. One-third would use it sort of here and there, depending on when they needed it. And then one-third wouldn't need it anymore. But it really, again, varies depending on situation. So this is the hardest part to get through, if that is any solace. Um, Sorry, I asked you the hardest question. <laughs> yes, but, uh, but, but over time, it really depends on the trajectory of that individual person. I'm just wondering who's here. Raise your hand if you're here because you're a parent and you're here for your, to learn about your kids. Okay, how many you're, So for uh, your kids between the ages of five to say, eight, okay, nine to twelve, the dreaded teenage years. Okay, so just one. Okay, um, and I think an important thing that I try to to bring up anytime there's a discussion about medication for teens, because you guys, your younger kids will eventually be teens if you let them. Um, is that teens are the largest kind of cohort, cohort of, of uh, uh, people with ADHD who take medication who don't want to take the medication. And, um, and please, if, if there's any research that you know that contraindicates what I'm about to say, please correct me. But when the, uh, the, the research has shown that when um, parents kind of force their teens to be on medication and they don't want to be on the medication, as soon as they leave their ho- the home, they're not going to take the medication. And in their 20s, when they really need to probably be on medication, they don't. When parents allow their, their teens to sort of make that decision themselves, they are more likely uh, to go back on the medication um, in their, their mid to late uh, 20s um, on their own if, as teens, they were not sort of forced to be on the medication. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I think what's difficult um, sometimes is that in terms of those core symptoms I'm talking about, so monitoring one's own attention, one's own level of impulsivity and hyperactivity, the person it's happening to is often not the best reporter of what's actually happening, which is weird. Again, like with the example of a headache, if if you had a headache, I would say, okay, how is your head feeling? I wouldn't turn to your mom and say, looking at that person, how does their headache, how's their headache going? But with something like this, you have to actually be looking at the observers because the person who it's happening to often doesn't have a very accurate sense of what's happening, which is strange. And you have to almost be upfront about that and explain that to the person who's taking the medication because they have to come to rely on other people's input and not just their own sense of how's this going. So I think the more you can discuss that and be flexible about things and allow them to have a say in what happens, the better off you're going to be with their uh, compliance. Great. And I think a, a helpful reminder, too, for, for parents of younger kids, um, that ADHD is a developmental delay. So the brain, the, that executive uh, part of our brain, that, the front part of our brain that develops less developmentally, um, it's on average about two to three years behind, but it's always catching up. Right? So when you're kid is nine in those areas of executive functioning is more like six. Um, again, there's always a delay, but it's always catching up. Um, so it needs a lot of those, those scaffolds, a lot of those supports. Um, and that's where the, the therapy and the coaching um, are, all, are very helpful. Um, but it's, you know, as, as Dr. Kaplan said, it's not, you know, the evidence shows that it can't really be a standalone. The, the, the evidence shows that with medication, 
therapy and coaching can be very, very helpful. Um, but the research also shows when therapy and coaching is discontinued, those the benefits tend to also uh, uh, cease to to a certain degree. Any questions on that? All right, Jonathan. And would you pass that microphone down to Lisa? Because I just I was realizing it's Lisa's the other kind of moderator. It's hard to moderate, and you don't have the other microphone. Hi, uh, my name is Jonathan Carroll. Uh, kind of following up some real great information here, so I will hopefully follow up. I am an ADHD and executive functioning coach. Give the microphone a little closer to you. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm an ADHD and executive functioning coach. I'm in uh, Northfield. Um, I used to be a teacher. I have a uh, master's of uh, education, special education, learning disabilities, social emotional disorders. Um, not only do I talk the talk, but I walk the walk. I have ADHD. I was diagnosed when I was about six. I'm 42 now. Um, been on probably most of the medications, have been through a variety of the treatments. So my, my approach really comes from a, a few different areas. Uh, one is, again, I live with ADHD, so I, I know what it's like. Um, I also have executive functioning challenges, which I help my clients with. Uh, those, those things really kind of help me relate. Um, I am a parent of, a, of an eight-year-old that all of a sudden we're like, hmm, wonder why he's doing these things. So I'm guessing that I will be in your shoes very soon. Sorry to pick on you, but you already set yourself up. <laughs> so I have a child that, that will probably be walking down that road, so I'm an adult with one. I'm a parent, um, you know, and, and, and I've been through a lot of this. And I work with, so usually after they're done with the neuropsych testing, usually after they see the psychiatrist, they'll come to me and we work on Skills we work on understanding ADHD, executive functioning challenges. There's really a lot of uh, crossover. Probably a lot of, almost a lot, almost all crossover. Those two things. So I work on those things. And then, um, you know, the other thing too is then I work with families, both clients of mine and independently. I work as, a, as an advocate of, of education, both for uh, you know as as learners go through the process. So speak to to both these areas. So what? How many of you here heard of ADHD coaching? How many of you here have any idea what ADHD coaching actually is? That's what I was going to ask you. Oh, good. Yeah. The front row is already picking up. Um, so, uh, so, I mean, I would say, you know, that, that really I think coaching is that, that it's like, you know, you're, you have a coach in sports. Like, let's say you play golf. You might have a golf coach. You have a tennis coach. You have a basketball coach. You know, my goal is to educate and, and help my clients improve skills that are, are deficits based on ADHD, based on executive functioning. Again, I come from a strength-based approach where I'm like, let's look at what you do well and say, okay, so these are things you do well. Not all of us struggle. You know, we talk about ADHD. Yeah, I've seen ADHD. You know, we, we, I think, as I like to say, you give me a million cases of ADHD, I'll say it manifests itself a million different ways. So every client of mine has got a different challenge with ADHD. So I really want my client to understand it, you know, there's a lot of information out there about ADHD. Unfortunately, there's a lot of not so great information out there about ADHD. So I think it's important that we decipher what's a valid thing and what's not. Um, I'm gonna pick on you again, Stacy, because you asked a question. Because as we hear, oh, does my kid outgrow this? And it's like, well, that's not necessarily the case. Now, can we develop compensation? Can, well, can't, sorry. Can they outgrow this? I say we develop compensation strategies as we get older for ADHD. For example, the invention of the smartphone has been a lifesaver for people like me. So I use that pretty much as my lifeline. That helps me a lot. What are some other ways that I focus? Well, I've created routines for myself and things like that. That comes with maturity. Um, I probably in my 20s acted like a teen, as Eric was talking about before, that deficit of, of stuff. And as I've gotten older, I've kind of developed these compensation strategies to 
function better in life. So that coaching really helps you understand ADHD, well, at least my approach would help you understand ADHD, how it impacts you, your family, if I see your family, your spouse, and then really like what are some ways that we can manage it better? And you know, the medication piece comes in, again, once we have the understanding and maybe we're, we're, we're medicating some of the symptoms or some of the concerns, then we can put this into place. Oh, question. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. is, what, the way I look at it is I have ADD. I mean, I know it's all supposed to be ADHD. I have ADD, my two sons have ADHD. Um, but because they are younger, the way that I was looking at it was that possibly because they're younger, being on the medication kind of teaches them the tools to how to control themselves so that eventually that's, I guess, where that came from. Do you want to do who wants to recap the question? So the question is that you're kind of wondering, <laughs> will the medication I'll kind of help them learn the skills to yeah. not be as effective as an adult? And I'll pass on to Dr. Kaplan, but what I teach my the kids and parents I work with is pills don't teach skills, but we can't often teach the skills if we don't have the pills on board. Because as he said, those three specific okay, those three specific There's core, a passing of the mic when it was first symptoms, medications. we can't control with therapy. We can help them learn the skills. And, and Eric and I were just at the recent international conference, and there is some evidence, and Jonathan was there too, I'm sorry. Um, there is some evidence that being on the pills and learning all the skills and doing different things can change the actual genes in the brain and improve over time. But there isn't a cure. I don't want to make no, it I, sound I like... a cure, but I feel like my son has pretty severe ADHD mm-hmm. that without medication, he really doesn't know what it's like to be able to Absolutely. Yeah, and I feel like maybe that right. helps give him the assistance. That he needs. And I guess the, the, the question I would want to know is, well, why are we asking this question in the first place? Um, if the medication is helping and there aren't significant adverse side effects, um, is, is there, because I, I do believe that there is a psychology behind psychiatry. Um, the what does it mean that we have to take medication? Like what what is the story that we're telling ourselves about it? Um, you know when people say that oh I don't want to be on medication my whole life. You know I I've been taking medication since I was diagnosed when, when I was 19 years old, and I know I can tell you very confidently that I would not be standing here right now talking to you, uh, telling you about this if it were not for medication. So what I I just hope that I can continue to get my medication for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, if um, you know, if I don't need it, then great. You know, I, we don't know what happens to our to us as we as we age, right? But you know, I think an important discussion to have uh, and um, an area to sort of explore is well, what is the um, what is getting in the way? What is the story that you're you're telling yourself um, um, about what does it mean to be on medication? Well, can I, I would say one thing too. Let me come back because I want to follow up sort of what everyone's saying is when you asked about coaching, so where, where do I come in? Your children, let's say you've made the medical decision, and I'm not a medical doctor, and I'm very clear to my clients that I'm very neutral when it comes to those decisions. You decide to have your child on some sort of medication, which should be, by the way, and I think that you'd agree, is an evolving process. It's not a one size fits all diagnosis. You need to be constantly evaluating and reevaluating how the medication works. Once you get to that point, 
I think it's really important for you to then bring in someone like me who's working on skills. So again, you know, the pills aren't this, you know, what, what she said is exactly right. My job is to kind of work with them. Okay, now that you have a little more of an ability to self-regulate yourself based on the proper medication, let me come in and help your child understand why they have to have an organized folder, why they have to make a study plan, or why they have to do this. Or as an adult, why do you have to make sure that you have a routine at night to get yourself ready in the morning? Let's talk about why you need to do those things. So that's where coaching kind of comes in. I have another question. Sorry to take that. Um, and we also have a question in, in the back there, too. Um, I, I was diagnosed with ADHD actually last year. And looking back, I know that I have dealt with it for a long time. But I have two children. One has ADHD, the other one an anxiety. The other one has depression, anxiety, Asperger's syndrome, and ADHD. Um, he has very high-functioning Asperger's syndrome. And the ADHD kind of followed him around. I guess it couldn't be diagnosed until very recently, so now it's, it's formal. But my question is, he is extremely bright and almost to the point where it's a problem because he's had all kinds of coaching and interventions and he's got an IEP and he goes to OT and physical therapy. He's got all kinds of people helping him. He has never been willing since he was this big to try anything to deal with his organization because he thinks he's so smart that he should be able to rely on his brain and he thinks it's an insult to use a piece of paper. So, or any others, I mean, I've challenged him. I said, go ahead and, you know, come up with your own system. But he's 15, just so you know, because he's doing the teenager thing as well. I think I heard that maybe there's some hope that he'll just sort of figure it out as he gets older, but, and I've sort of been hoping for that, but it seems like it's taking a long time to get there. <laughs> okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recap that. <laughs> I want to just recap the, the question. Um, this is always a challenge for me to do. Um, so you, you have a, a uh, your son is 15 years old, has basically the alphabet soup of diagnosis, um, and is not willing to even acknowledge that maybe some strategies like writing things down would may possibly be helpful for him. Yeah, he acknowledges that he has organizational difficulties. That's no problem. People tell you that right up front. But he doesn't want to do anything to help him stay more organized. So I'm going to make a, so a quick response to this, and then I'm going to, it looks like our, our neuropsych wants to uh, respond to this. Um, so one, I would look at the, the idea of explaining to you how, how does the brain work? Because the idea is that our, our brain is not meant to store temporary pieces of information. It can, sort of, but not really well. So one I would look at, just because we can remember it, doesn't mean we should try to remember it. Um, I would also maybe set up some, some experiments, let him prove to himself how good his memory is that he claims uh, to be. And I would also discuss shame uh, with him. I think that's a really important component of, of having ADHD. It's when you know you're smart, but your grades and performance don't show it. Um, and there's a lot of, of failures and mistakes and rejection. Um, shame is the elephant in the room uh, for both kids and adults. Um, and I think it's a really important uh, discussion to, to have. Um, and similarly to the medication, what does it mean if I need medication? What does it mean if I need to write everything down? Um, I, I tell my clients that I just assume, like I live by the philosophy that I'm going to forget everything I need to do, which then makes it really easy to decide to write everything down. Okay? There's a top lie that people with ADHD tell themselves and really believe. So I'll remember that. 
Mm. <laughs> well, he's complicated by the fact that he does have some mild Asperger's fixations, which kind of take over when he needs to remember things. And he can't tolerate stimulants, so he's on the non-stimulant version of it because he gets full body tics. I mean, it's really because of his sensory stuff. So can you respond to, to that, especially with the uh, uh, Asperger um, combination? Either one of you guys. Uh, okay, thank you for having me. <laughs> Good night. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, there's a couple. Of, uh, there's a couple of things. As you're talking, I think just like biofeedback, which is something where you put things on your head and they're like a sleep study, they watch your brain with. I would sort of challenge him in a way to show him again. This is where testing comes in, where the data suggests this. You're showing this. I'd also probably work with him on how he views organization and look at some of his techniques and try to figure that out. But really when you're dealing with someone that like, is like that, my approach, and I'm not a kumbaya sort of, my approach is more of you almost have to wait till he doesn't succeed and then just sort of supportively be there in a paradoxical way to say, okay, you've hit your rock bottom, grades, whatever it may be, what do you think about changing it? Well, that's my other question, is it feels like he's got so many services of people who are sort of invested in trying to help him succeed that he really never quite gets to that point. Well, and I mean, a, lot of, a lot of that is over-servicing. It's just like we put kids in over-sports and over-activities. There's a lot of over-servicing. Yeah. A lot of people tell you you're going to do this, this, and this, and that. I'm not going to tell you what to do or who to do, but I think it's paramount to have um, the three cores here, a therapist, uh, someone that's doing the testing, someone that's doing the medicating, so we can all be on the same page. I can call him or him or hers, whatever, and say, hey, what's going on? So that, in your particular case, they're hearing it from three different people, especially not you. Yeah. Because the more they hear it from you, the less they're going to do that. And again, that comes into, well, then I can tell you with diagnosis, there's also a little oppositionality coming in here, or it's the aspirin, or, and this is how we can work with, or it's yeah. a teenager in them. And he's hormonally a man. There is a cure for that. It's just time. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I did not. No, no, go ahead. I actually wanted to jump in on that too. I, I think you just made an outstanding point, which is there is, are a tremendous amount of service providers out there offering services. Again, it's like, you know, and, and, and fortunately or unfortunately, you know, this is a profit business. I think people see the opportunity to say, like, I can fix your kid. And let's be very clear, or I can fix you or whatever. Let's be clear that there's no fix. There's compensation strategies, no fix. So if somebody says they can fix you, I think you probably want to start running as fast as you can the other direction. <laughs> and, and guys, your, your kids aren't broken. Right. Your kids aren't broken. And I think that's a... Right. Well, let me... I'll, I'll, layers. So to kind of to kind of go back into that. So I, I really like... You know, I really want to say, like, there are all these service providers. The services they're providing are, are legitimately effective. But I think once in a while, as a fair comment I make to my clients, so let's say go to get medication or get testing... You know, it's okay to ask, what is the point of this? Why am I doing this? And if you don't get the answer you like, you may want to start looking either other service providers or maybe going another direction. Ask the same questions your kids do. One Why? Thing I asked, well, I just knew this just had to change, but he said, and maybe this is the reason, but you guys have said some things about teenagers. He says sometimes that he wishes he didn't have as many people helping him as he does. Mm-hmm. And I, didn't, I mean, he's about to just oh. start anyway, so Just to, to echo for the, the recording. That might not be a way to go. Just sort of help <clears throat> it out. Okay, so uh, your son was saying that, that he's kind of wishes he doesn't have as many people <laughs> helping. Uh, go ahead. Okay, so that's where really I think 
parents got to almost in a way trust what the child's telling them, what your kid's telling you. Because remember, as kids, they're also in this, this peer group. They're trying to fit in in several places and belong in several places. So to develop a relationship with a person like me, I don't really wear suits only because I came here to impress you guys, but usually I'm sort of pretty relaxed because, again, the, the, the child has to develop a relationship, especially sort of the work I do. So if you have them going to someone like me and we're doing hardcore therapy and then you have them going to the OT, and then you have, that can be a lot for a child, not to mention the schoolwork and the behavioral issues and the Asperger's issues that come up and regular teenage issues that come up. Does that make sense? Yeah. I hope I yes. I, we're supposed yeah. to switch mics. Um, I'm sorry. Lisa, hang, hang out to the, the microphone now, okay? Oh. No, 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 no. The right one. Hold on to this. Yeah. Okay. I won't <laughs> let go of this mic. Okay. Um, one of the other things we find is a lot of kids are so well supported now at school and everywhere else. And we, we want them to be well supported. We want them to have an IEP. We want the school to make accommodations. But if that is preventing them from feeling like they can do it on their own and from learning the strategies, it is time, especially at 15, to let them kind of hit the rock bottom. Um, we've all worked with clients that we've called the teachers and said, let them fail. Because if we don't, they don't really get that they have to put more effort in. And motivation is a big problem in ADHD. And getting them to be motivated means they have to want it themselves. All the external motivation that we can do as kids, that you get a, a, a star on your chart for doing this, this, and this, that doesn't work with teenagers unless you got bigger and bigger and bigger. And in, with kids who are ADD or even on, especially on the oppositional side, it never works. Right. It has to be, we want to start learning intrinsic motivation instead of external motivation. So and to, like trying to let them find their own path? It, it is, and it's really hard for us as parents and yeah. teachers and therapists and doctors because we want to help. But sometimes they have to figure out where it is on their own, and we want them to figure it out at 15 and not at 19 when they're away at school trying to do something on their Something's own. Better. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I talk to parents all the time about it's the middle schooler who's not doing their homework. Okay, let's see how far they'll go. And then we may have to deal with anxiety and depression and other things afterwards, but then we can figure out how to help them start rebuilding. Go from there. Mm -hmm. Instead of junior year in high school when all the colleges are looking at them and we want to support right. them up, then they get to college and we end up getting them back by December. So it's, it's hard. It's really hard. So is there a question in the back? Oh, I'm Dr. Varma. I'm a psychiatrist, a board yes. psychiatrist here in Vernon Hills. I was late for Oh, um, Would you mind coming up so I can use this for the recording, your question? Oh, okay. It was a comment. It was a comment. It's okay. Um, but I, I, to your point, Lisa, that's exactly right. You want to solve these problems before they leave for college and then all yes. that money spent for college. Like, that's that's a big thing. The other thing I don't know if you guys already brought up was motivational um, interviewing mm -hmm. as well as the stages of ch changes. And that's why I would hope that's something you guys would use to, you know, kind of identify before they fail. Right. And after. So... So the comment had to do with a motivational interviewing and stages of, of change, and that's uh, those are really important uh, uh, parts to whether it's therapy or coaching. You know, you can't make someone want to change, right? It's in with ADHD. It's not about 
trying harder because you know, when you look at functional MRI scans, so looking at the brain actually under a, a brain imaging scan doing kind of boring cognitive tasks, and you compare the ADHD brain to the non-ADHD brain, you know, the brain that is lighting up more is the brain that's using more energy. So we would assume that's effort, right? And the ADHD brain has to put in a lot more effort from a neurological level for doing the same kinds of tasks um, that the non-ADHD person does. So I think when I talked about shame earlier, the where I think there's so much shame uh, um, with this is that the person with ADHD is trying harder. When you tell someone, well, just try harder, and their experience is, you have no idea how hard I'm trying, um, that's where the, the sort of the shutting down and right. the uh, and the sort of giving up and some of the learned helplessness uh, sort of kicks in. So the idea of motivational interviewing um, really looks at trying to find what is, from the, the person's perspective, um, finding what are their sort of core challenges and how can um, supports sort of help them with their core challenges to help them see, not, you know, to make change, not because mom or dad or teachers are saying you need to do this, but help them come up with their own why. What, what is their own why? Would they like to be able to not uh, have to be pulled out for some, you know, maybe some special uh, assistance in, during the school day? Or um, would they like to uh, you know, be included more with, with the, some social groups? So there's a lot of different reasons uh, sort of target, and it's looking at the because I told you so. Um, don't ever tell somebody with ADHD to do it because I told you so, because you can tell them that you have to blue in the face. Because right? people with ADHD, kids and adults, arguing stimulates our brain, and our brain is un an under-aroused, under-stimulated brain. The next session of the ADHD Rewired Coaching and Accountability Group is just around the corner. Not sure if it could benefit you? Well, listen to how it benefited a few people from our last coaching group. I am a therapist. I teach people about ADHD. I know a lot about ADHD. I have a daughter with ADHD, but there's no substitute for being in a group of people who are there to support you, where it's not just about information, but you're with a group of people who can be there for you and support you and talk to you about what you're going through and identify with you. I would imagine you will come out with perspective that you didn't even know that you could have. Dealing with lurking shame that you may not have known that you were dealing with on some level. There's nothing like that. You're just finding support for yourself and other people. You will find your tribe, people that are like-minded, very smart, successful people who are struggling exactly like you are. And it's just so amazing how normalizing it is for the ADHD. And you will learn tools, you will get practice implementing them, you'll get guidance and support. And it's coaching at the same time, only you've got many coaches. It's just a fantastic experience and it'll change your whole world. If I was someone who was thinking about joining the group, I would say definitely do it. I think that they would learn a lot. I'm surprised at everything that I learned in the group. The bonus is really getting to know all these folks. It's helped me feel better about myself too as a person who has ADHD. So that's helping me with the self-acceptance piece. I just feel like there would be so many benefits to joining. I would definitely recommend it. You know, I'd love to see some of my family members do it. 
give yourself the gift of the ADHD Rewired Coaching and Accountability Group. Go to coachingrewired.com for more information. Registration is December 19th through the 30th. We start January 16th. To schedule your registration call, go to coachingrewired.com. ADHD Rewired listeners, we've got some great events coming up this month that I want you to know about. We have some webinars and I want you to join me for my brand new webinar, Productivity Solutions for the Time Blind. I'm going to be sharing with you a ton of brand new content and we're going to take a really deep dive into my latest thinking around time management, productivity, planning, processing, prioritizing, and getting things done. You can join us December 12th at 10 30 a.m. Central Time or at December 19th at 12.30 p.m. Central Time. This is a 90-minute webinar and will follow 30 minutes of Q&A. You can register at erictivers.com slash events. Got a question you want to ask? Join us for a productivity Q&A. You can ask us questions by video or by text chat. We're going to be doing this on Tuesday December 13th at 1230 p.m. and Wednesday, December 21st at 1030 a.m. These are all central times and will each be 90 minutes. Then starting in 2017, you can join us on the second Tuesday of every month at 1230 p.m. We'll be doing a live Q&A. Finally, our Wednesday evening study halls that are a part of the WTF to Done insurance series end December 8th. So if you have forms to fill out or you're stuck on something related to insurance, join us from 7 to 8 p.m. Central. Jessica Stilwell will be there to answer your questions if you get stuck. And I wanted to send a big, big thank you to Jessica for paying it forward so much in such a big way with your time, your expertise, with setting up the scholarship fund. And uh, and if you'd like to help pay it forward, we actually just started a Patreon page. You can go to erictippers.com slash Patreon. It's up and live, but I still have a lot of work to do on it. I'm, uh, I'm working on my perfectionism, so I have a very imperfect version of that live on my website. Um, but I'll have more information about that in coming weeks. So all the live events and information about them where you can register is at erictivers.com slash events. That's erictivers.com slash events. I was just going to say to your point, we, we talked about that briefly when you were, uh, the biggest thing with motivational is rolling with resistance instead of being conflictual. Yeah. And then the stages of complaint, uh, stages, you know, there's five stages. You just go through It's normally out of the addiction world, but it's kind of coming over into other areas of psychology and mental mm-hmm. mental health. It, it really allows, we really kind of go over in motivational interviewing. Why, or don't use the word why, but what, what would you like? to come of this. What would your reasons for doing X be? What would your reasons for doing Y be? What would your reasons for not be doing? What are they for not? And I'm sorry, 
the, the minute you said we do this, I remember the first time I met Eric several years ago when I came to consult him for my own son who uh -oh. has ADHD. You don't remember that, do you? <laughs> and I said, I do this. I'm a therapist, and I do it for a living. And he goes, yeah, but you're his mom. Nothing you say matters. His whole goal as a teenager, their goal is to separate from you. Even as young as seven or eight years old, their goal is to try and separate and become their individual who is just like you because they idolize you, but they have to break away. So if it comes from you as a parent, it's not usually going to work. We try often to incorporate others. Tutors, study buddies, um, anybody non-professional, non-authoritative that they can relate to. Yeah. Let me just stop. Whenever we try to work with him on making a decision, we learned a long time ago whether it's the ADHD or the Asperger's, I don't know, but we had to get his buy-in. So we would often either ask him what was acceptable to him or we would come up with options that, and let him pick so that that's the only way we ever to get him to have buy in mm -hmm. I just want to I'm sorry, I'm going to time out everybody. There was another question over here. I just want to make sure we... I just want, can I just say one more sure. point to follow up? Okay, real quick, and this is a great lesson I learned as a professional. One of my colleagues I respect once said to me, he says to me that, that when it comes to being a parent, all bets are off. So all of our training, everything we get paid to do, everything that we have is out the window when it comes to our own child. So kids have taught us that. Yeah, exactly. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's okay. You had a question. Yeah, uh, I was diagnosed about 20 years ago. Uh, for my around my 70th birthday, I realized that I had some great things in my life because I was ADHD, and I realized that I put different things together. And I would ask questions, and I had a great promotion in my career at an early age, and I was told, because I asked questions. We asked questions, we'd be at meetings, and I'd say, bidding, 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 and I'd say, crap, we never thought about that. So, searching that out, my daughter next month gets her doctorate in education, she's not ADHD, that she said, Google on ADHD creative thinking. Absolutely. Okay, and I began to see a whole other side of what I have. I still have all the crap, <laughs> but, but there's another side to it that is exhilarating, and I can look back and see phenomenal things that I have in my life because of it. And it's, you know, it's crap, but... The sun shines. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I can tell you that every one of us up here is a strength-based approach. We always look for what are your strengths. A lot of times if you maximize the strengths, the, you can overcome some of the challenges or the crap, as you mentioned, because we all have both. Yeah, it's there. It's a great way to do it. Can I go back to medication? I have a son with ADHD, ODD, anxiety, sleeping issues, everything other side of the spectrum also. Um, he's been on a couple of different medications. Is that usually what you do is go through? I mean, we've been to a psychiatrist twice. They both push more meds, more meds, but I feel more comfortable with our neurologist. Is that normal to try a med, another dosage again, go to another med? Have a reaction, have this denied by the insurance, another man, now we gotta change the dosage again and again and again. 
and being only six. <laughs> and can you just recap the question? Oh, do you want to recap it? Do I have to? No, I can recap it. I didn't, I didn't know if you were going to do it or I should do it. Um, so the question was, you have a six-year-old, was that right, who um, has ADHD and anxiety and um, is on the spectrum, et cetera, um, and has been to see a psychiatrist, two, two psychiatrists and a neurologist as well. Um, for medication for ADHD, and they've changed the medication several times, and there are problems, and is this normal to go through all these medications, et cetera. I think the, the best way to look at it is remembering that for those core symptoms, medication is really the only, is the mainstay of treatment. That's why you're going through those different options, because the person knows that, for example, for you know, lack of focus or distractibility, that medication is going to be the thing that will ultimately help that child if they can find the right medication for him. Um, whereas, for example, saying, well, go do this kind of therapy to learn how to focus, they know is not going to be a successful approach. So unlike certain other situations in behavioral health, here you really are kind of stuck looking at medication in a very you know, focused way. I think that one of the things that I try to do is help parents to understand that a lot of it comes also at their pace of what they're comfortable with and that with some ADHD medications you can tell very quickly how things are going to go and for some you might not be able to tell very quickly and it's important that everyone's sort of on board and getting the right information from the school and the parents and the input to make sure that decisions aren't being made too rapidly so that it's making people either confused or uncomfortable about what's happening. But the thing is that there are lots of different kinds of medications to treat ADHD and so sometimes you do have to try a number of different medications before you find one that happens to work for that individual child. So it's trying to find that balance between what's your comfort level in moving through this process and then at the same time realizing that for at least certain situations you still have to keep trying and, and looking at different medication options. So Dr. Kaplan, what is the, in your experience, the average, like how many sort of tr uh, attempts at bat uh, does it take for you to sort of get it right? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a hard question. Again, a lot of these questions are hard. Um, because, again, so since I said that ADHD is probably a thousand different things, right? So some of the people who have ADHD are going to hit it on the first try. And it may be that no matter what medication they would have tried, it would have worked for them. Whereas others might have more difficult situations where they're going to have more side effects to medication. It's not going to work as well. or The dose has to be adjusted. And so... You know, there's no real easy answer to what's the average number. It's just that every situation is very different, and so it's hard to say. The other thing is I'm biased because as a psychiatrist, um, I don't see a lot of the children who hit it on the first try because there are enough pediatricians in the area that are comfortable enough to prescribe, you know, Concerta or something right off the bat and say, hey, does this work? And if it works, I may never see them. So with mine, I mean, I see people who've tried you know, eight medications, you know, whereas others may say, well, that seems very excessive. Uh, you know, a lot of people only have to try, let's say, three or four to find one that would work for them. I recognize that this is not a statistically significant sample size, but I thought maybe we can do a little crowdsourcing of this, this question. Um, so if you could raise your hand if you currently take medication or your child takes medication. Okay. Keep your hand up if you got it right on the first try. What two? Okay. And one over there. Okay. Three. 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 One. Um, and there were there were I don't know probably most of the raise your hands again everyone who raised their hands initially. Um, 
1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. All right, so 17, 3 out of 17 the first try. So I think it's really helpful information. Um, I think one of the things that, that I often hear um, when I'm working with, with clients is that there's not a, a good sort of patient education on what to expect. You know, it's, it's so they get this prescription of medication, and, and then what? There's, there's um, unfortunately, from what I hear, and I'm sure it's not from any clients that, that I see there, your, your care. We're um, all my clients. But, 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 there's, but there's this, like, you know, because I work with people who say, oh, I tried medication, it didn't work. I said, well, tell me about that. What does that mean to you try a medication? You know, and often so I try this, you know, short-acting Adderall at, at, you know, 15 milligrams, and that just didn't work. You know, did you try different doses? No, it just didn't work. So it's like when I hear you try medication, a trial means trial and error, right? We use statistical probability to get it right. And if you sort of understand the way statistics work, you know, someone's mathematically challenged, it's kind of cool to sort of understand the application of, of math and statistics. But it's actually really powerful on how we do this. So it's not that we're shooting in the dark. We have really good uh, uh, sample sizes and, and, weight and tools that we use to try medication. Yeah, and so it's, it's, it's using, it's not a total random process. There is a logic to it. One of the things that I do with clients um, when we're talking about medication is I do have a chart that I show them at the very beginning, which shows the different types of stimulants, the non-stimulants, et cetera, so they get at least a visual of, okay, here are the different options, and realizing there are lots and lots of medications. And so from there, they you know, can at least get a sense that, hey, this is a, one of these things where I just hand you a prescription for some medicine. We're doing it in a logical way, and there are a lot of different potential options that could be tried. Dr. Farma. Um, yeah, do you use the genetic testing? I use that a lot in my practice, especially when someone having a lot of side effects and problems to medications. Do you use that? Well, um, the, so the question is about the genetic. about genetic testing. Can you can you speak into the mic though? Because they're going to want to hear the the oh, recording's going to want to hear this. So what I wanted to ask you was, in your experience, because you use the genetic testing a lot, and then I'll answer the question after, what do you learn from the genetic testing that actually is helpful to patients? The thing that helps me the most is um, the metabolism and the issues people have with metabolism in terms of needing more medication, less medication, or medication that might have more side effects or less side effects. For them, that's what I found in, in mine, especially when people are having problems with certain medications or needing a higher dose than normal of medications. That's what I found in my practice. So what percent of your patients do you think you actually do the genetic testing on? Maybe like 10%, only ones that have been having a lot of problems um, getting their medication. I have the same practice you do where if the primary care is because they've solved it, they already did. So by the time they reach me, they're having much more complications and a lot of comorbid things like you guys were talking about Asperger's or anxiety or depression or bipolar. So there's a lot of things kind of going on at the same time and the genetic testing can actually help with any of those medications, not just with ADHD medications. Can I ask a question? Does anybody know what genetic testing is? Can you guys elaborate for us? Go ahead. Okay. You do? Great. I'm not an expert on it. Okay. Can I elaborate? So I think this is an important point and a good clarification, so I'm glad you brought that up, is that um, genetic testing is looking at certain genes 
and being able to see for that individual whether they have this kind of the gene. Like, there's for each gene, there's different types. You might have A, B, or C. You know, like blood type. So there's like you have either A or O. So it's kind of like, well, for this particular gene, which we believe has something to do with metabolism of medication, do you have type A or type B or type C? And that tells us how fast your body basically gets rid of the medication. So the reason this is important is that some people come thinking that genetic testing is something which is going to tell you which medicine will work best for you or which medicine will cause side effects, and it doesn't do that. And again, correct me if anything, if you disagree. Um, it's really more about how fast it gets rid of it from the body. So for example, if you're a person who gets rid of medicine very slowly, then if you're using high doses, it could build up in the body and eventually would cause side effects. And if you're someone who you say, like, wow, you, you seem to need a really high dose of medicine, that might be because your body flushes it out very quickly. But the point is, you wouldn't necessarily use this in every person because a lot of the time what you're doing, it's not, remember, the testing isn't telling you which medication is going to be the best or which one's going to work the best. So you start trying things and you start changing the dose and seeing how things go. And eventually you may never need to get to something like this because you may find, just based on your own experience, what's happening. It may answer certain questions if you're having a lot of difficulty, just trying to sort out why is this person not really responding to medicine well or why are they having so many side effects. And I think this was something that was uh, only in the last year approved by the FDA. Um, correct us. So it's, it, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong on this, but um, so it's still very new. And so you know, I think it's interesting. I think it's something to, that we should be following. Um, but I think it's, it's in the, the, the sort of world of emerging practices of interest. Um, so that's just what, what I've read on it. Can you address, um, oh, I'm sorry, there's a question. Is that just like a standard pay test, or is it for my insurance? Because my son was on 20 milligrams of Adderall before, like, it's gone within like two hours. Mm -hmm. So now we're like at three, four doses a day of just the regular. So is that a test that's... So the question is, is uh, self-pay? Yeah, self-pay or insurance? It, it depends. Do, do your clients get uh, uh, reimbursement? It just depends. It depends on which, which kind which we use. There's all different kinds of tests. And I think it's been available for much more than one year. Just finally we've got it where we can actually access it. It doesn't cost $12,000 oh, nice. and all those things, too. So I think it's been available for much longer than that. But also I think the important point here is, you know, when you say, oh, my son goes through Adderall in, you know, two hours... Well, that, if you did the test, it's probably going to come back and say, he's a fast metabolizer of Adderall. So, I mean, you have to decide, okay, so what's your goal of doing the test? You know what I'm saying? You're kind of almost proving things yourself by just doing that. So, in terms of the idea of is it worth it financially if insurance isn't going to pay, you have to decide what you're really going to learn from this. And it's not going to be like, what is the medicine that's going to work the best, necessarily. Question. Given the genetic potential component and what you were saying earlier, and forgive me, I don't recall your name, but job. Is there a, you were saying that, you were, that there's a, a million different presenting patients with a million potential different diagnoses. Is there a spectrum we're talking about ADHD, or is it kind of on or off? Wait, I can answer that. Yeah, go ahead. You have talked enough. Yes, there's a spectrum of ADHD. I'm going to let Dr. Uh, Dr. Ryan go over the different types. But even within those types, you're going to see different presentations from anybody you meet. So the primary type that I see is mostly a combined type. So you have the hyperactivity, which is 
um, a lot of movement, a lot of fidgety, a lot of walking around, restlessness, sort of, right? That is combined with the inattention. So they say it's a combined type. So it's a hyperactivity, which incorporates, you know, encompasses all of the behavioral stuff, but also the inattention, which is sort of less behavior and sort of the staring off, the more inattentive type. You have the primary hyperactive type, and then you have the primary inattentive type. So people can flow through all that. I've also seen, if you want to jump in, I've also seen people that have started off with something, like the combined type, and as they've aged and continue to work with me, and I've tested them you know, every three years based on what the state recommendation, the hyperactivity sort of wane, but you do see the inattentive staying there. The inattention is still there, whether that's at their job, at school, what have you. Does that answer your question at all? Okay. I think the other important point is, uh, another important point is that um, since what we look at as ADHD, whatever that is, again, of these, all these different things, um, is influenced by multiple genes and is pretty complex, when we're talking about ADHD, we're talking about a description of behavior, and so there's a spectrum over which it exists in terms of how much it manifests, which means it's not like something saying, oh, do you have strep throat? We're going to swab your throat. You either have it or you don't. It's going to be from going from the person who's the most focused all the way over to the person who's the least, and then somewhere we're making an arbitrary cut and saying, well, basically, we're calling this ADHD and you don't have it, but it's not something you can really test for in a pure way. So that, that adds a complicating factor. Also, I should say with medication that the dose of medicine a person takes does not mean or does not correlate with how, quote, unquote, severe the ADHD is. It's more about how the body processes the medication, uses it. So just because you need a high dose of medicine doesn't mean you have, like, the most severe sure. case of ADHD. Yeah, good point. Good question. question in the back. Um, I'm listening to what you're just saying. Eric knows because I've, I've talked to him, and I think you also the last few meetings about this. I have a daughter who's going to be three years old, and listening to everything you say here, and after what I've experienced with her over the last month, I can't do anything except for just to feel like she's got it. But how do I know? Because except for this group here, everybody else that I've talked to, my therapist, her pediatrician, they're like, oh, she's just a three-year-old. She's just a three-year-old. Because I have such problems dealing with her. My wife's saying, well, deal with her this way. And I've been thinking that, okay, I've got to deal with her, maybe how an ADHD person it is. And it's nearly impossible lately to get her to behave. Okay, so thank, thank you for the question. Let me uh, let me recap it for the, the recording. So, even uh, daughter's three years old. As from from your observation, you think she's about as ADHD as they come. You have people around you who are saying, "Ah, eh, she's just three years old." What do you do? Is that is that the question? Pretty much. Okay. And my wife is hesitant. She's like, she doesn't need to test. She's a three year old. Okay. So what would you say to that? Respectfully disagree. And have the child get tested again. You can test as old as or as young as two, six months, two, three months on some. You're the only person who ever said that to me. Yeah, there's, there's. Um, I'm just listening, like off the top of my head. There's a Denver. There's the Help. It's the Hawaii Early Learning Profile. And what you do these are all those, clinical assessments. These are all clinical assessments. Well, what someone like I would do would go in and watch the behavior and make a, a behave like a baseline and follow it because just like Dr. Kaplan's talking about there are criteria now they're not greatly defined and the DSM changes and there'll be another one but there are criteria and that's how someone goes along the diagnostic route is you basically 
kind of go through. And if no one's ever even walked through those criteria for you, that's, I'm sorry you've gone to those providers. I'm happy to help and walk through about, okay, are you seeing those things? That's why I put the first thing in your folder of, do you think, did you see the first page? Is she, did you check off any of those? And if you are, then you'd follow the next step. Now, the problem with waiting is um, you're waiting. Uh, and it gets harder as the child progresses along the lifespan and the developmental span. So I know a lot of people don't say that, but there was a, there's a great book I kind of recommend, and it's called like the, the Loss of a Normal Child. And, and it talks about sort of not only societal stigma, but stigma between us as parents and people about when you have a child that is not normal baseline, that's stigmatized. And I know I feel it as a parent. It's my kid has some issues. I know other parents feel it that I've talked to. It happens. And that's where I think, you know, just sort of reassuring um, your spouse and just saying, you know, it's okay. The testing is not going to say she's this horrible person. That's not what the sort of testing. We're just sort of seeing if she meets the criteria based on evidence-based. That's why testing is so important, evidence-based. And to also rule out other stuff. I'd like to give her a sensory profile, see where she is on that. To rule out other issues that may be comorbid. Even the American Academy of Pediatrics has recommendations downtage too. Can I, uh, can I just jump in? I have, I have my son, the one I mentioned, who's eight years old. When he was about, say, nine months old, we had him in daycare, and they did a screening, and you know, they found that he had some sensory, some challenges, some other challenges, and uh, you know, we got him into the early intervention program in the state of Illinois, which was a godsend to us. I mean, I know your daughter's three. My daughter, you know, my son at the time really had some challenges. Again, I mean, they're not that they went away, but the early addressing of those really helped. So I, I stand behind you, and I don't want to say your fight, but let's call it your, you know, your, your belief, the strength of your belief that your daughter has something else going on. And I would say to you, hey, if that's the way you feel, like I said earlier, all bets are off when it comes to your own kid. So if you think your kid's got something going on, you know, you're, you're hearing what we're saying, and, and you, you be resourceful and find those resources out there to help you. I just to clarify. Yeah, we have to respect time right now, so if, um, I'm sure at the very end, if there's other sure. questions, we can Absolutely. stick around for a little bit. Um, so what I want to do is find out if, because um, part of what we want to do tonight is what we've just been doing, and, and I hope that this has been really helpful uh, for you guys. But we have a nice uh, sized group here, and at one of the, um, the real values of this, besides from just being a, you know, a, a, an educational program that we're providing, is that this is a community. And there is something about being able to talk with other people who are going through uh, the same kind of challenges, how powerful and important that can be. So right now it's about 8 o'clock, we have until about 8.30. And what I would like to, to um, ask the group is, how do you guys feel about splitting up in maybe three different groups and um, maybe you guys can all float around and, and sure. uh, answer questions that way? So how about we raise our hands for who likes to stay in this format where you can ask questions up here? Okay, and how many people would like to break into smaller groups with any one of us into smaller groups. I just have a question. Nothing has been about adults. How would that be best addressed to be able to ask questions regarding adults having you? I, I think it was tied for format. Um, so uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we do 15 more minutes of this format and let's address some adult issues 
and then um, we'll break up and the four of the five of us will split up and maybe Dr. Varma would help us and split up and I think there's another educational consultant and another therapist here and if you guys have questions you can go find the professional you need to. How's that? Can you bring your groups into interest? Sure. Yes. Yes and I will, I will do that. So, so we'll for the last 15 minutes for this part, let's have maybe sort of like a lightning round so we yeah. can try to answer as many questions as possible and also keep everyone's attention. Um, so, um, was there a question about adults? Do you have a specific question? No, specific question. As far as different types of ADHD and getting those diagnosed, I know that that determines like what kind of meds you might take. And I myself have already been through a, a few different, um, going to a few different doctors and tried, tried a few different things, and then they just kind of finished, and then I moved on to someone else and that didn't work well. So like, I found as an adult I have to experiment as much as a child. Does. Sure. And apparently women of a certain age. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have a couple questions there. So it's um, the type of ADHD and does, does that... Um, influence a type of medication. Well, how do we get the, no, that's not exactly right. right. Final question is, how do we get the best evaluation to really find out what to try and how do you two relate to each other? Like, I don't do like you, him much. But <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you, I did this. <laughs> no, I, I think that's I think that's an important question. It's one of the things that for the I, recording. Um, how do you evaluate and make a, a diagnosis for an adult, right? Is that what you're... And and how do we collaborate? And then Dr. Kaplan does the prescribing? We, we both have the um, clinical leverage to diagnose. Uh, we both have separate licenses. It's how you go diagnose. And one of the things I think that's great about having him and I on the panel is working together with a psychiatrist. Because I don't... I'm a psychiatrist. I don't do a lot of the stuff he does, and it's a lot way over my head versus some of the tests that I do, I think he's not comfortable. So just like a, ch a child or a teenager, I would do the same thing with an adult. I'd get a comprehensive history, and I would give you a bunch of batteries. But with an adult, what you could do also is throw in other personality-style batteries to see what else is going on, life stressor ones, where you might not need those so much from the kid because the parent's giving you a, a good enough report. You may, but you may not. Does that make sense? Yes. So both of us can diagnose. It's what are you basing your diagnoses on? And I just base, because that's the way I feel it's appropriate, evidence-based data. That I'm going to give you a test. I'm going to test you with a bunch of stuff, cognitive, personality. And then what the data tells me, I'm going to put that in a report and then interpret it. So then that way, you, know, you have someone that's following a protocol versus mm -hmm. my clinical instinct is telling me that you're ADHD because of X, Y, and Z. And that's what I'm going to diagnose you with. That's not my approach. That's why I, I kind of so came here. you do here. a lot of thorough testing. Yes. And then how does that then transfer to someone saying, okay, this is the mental try then because you've got this type of... Well, I wouldn't say that. I would more say a, something like I put a recommendation section in, and I also, just so you guys know, there's always recommendations in a good testing protocol. There's always evidence-based recommendations, not cut and paste because everyone's different as far as the lifespan goes. So someone like that, I would say a psychiatric consultation is appropriate. And let him handle that. Because then he can get into some of the what's, you know, what's your hypersensitivity and all the stuff he asks based on my recommendation. Now, a lot of times, I will be honest, we don't, people like us, we don't talk much. And that's unfortunately the way, the way our field is. You hang a shingle and you kind of go out there. But that's why I like to work with people like Dr. Kaplan because 
he is sort of the comprehensive, let's talk to several components. Does that make sense? So it is a good idea to use both of you. I would recommend both that. Roles. Yes, I would recommend okay. that. Going to just a psychiatrist doesn't necessarily cover all Well, what the research says is medication and supportive therapy with an evaluation is, is the best prognosis for okay. success. So both. And I, and I would put that, and I, I hope there's no one here that's a pediatrician, I would put that over going to your primary care doctor and trying to get a psychological med there. Because these guys are really, and women, are really the experts in psychotropic medication. Mm-hmm. And the research will find that a lot of time primary care psycho- or doctors, they misprescribe, and they're not comfortable prescribing. I've worked in that venue before. They just don't want to get into some of the deep stuff. That's why there's experts like Dr. Kaplan. And we also know, too, that, that makes sense? there's often a lot of under-prescribing, right. right? Now, when I had said lightning around, that wasn't really what I imagined. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I would Sorry. like Dr. Kaplan Sorry. to follow up on that one. I know you said lightning round, but once Dr. Ryan or you make the diagnosis or I make a diagnosis and refer to you, etc., how do you pick a medication is kind of what she's asking in some ways. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Thank you. So I'm going to say it again because I've said it so many times. If ADHD is a thousand different things that we cannot tell apart, this whole notion of there's an inattentive type and there's a hyperactive type and there's a combined type is a very, very broad brush, sort of artificial, kind of like, well, you kind of look like this and you kind of look like this. It does not dictate specifically like what medication you would try first. There's other factors that go into that. And it's not as though... And this gets very detailed for the light right. round. It's not as though you necessarily say, oh, this medicine is for the inattentive type and this one is for this. It's, it's a more complicated determination. So the most important thing from him that I would get is, I want to know from him, is does the person have other issues besides those core symptoms of ADHD that we right. need to be worried about? So learning disabilities, processing issues, and other kinds of psychiatric concerns that might play into this. And that, you know, if he says what person he believes has ADHD, okay, now... I have to decide what to do as far as the treatment is concerned. Okay. So if I refer to someone, to Dr. Kaplan, I might say, uh, you know, I will call him and say, I've just met someone and done an assessment and I see ADHD and anxiety. I will tell him which I think is impacting their life more. Mm -hmm. Then he will do a thorough assessment and decide if he agrees or disagrees and treat based on which one he sees because usually we don't start two drugs or two therapies at a time. So there's all kinds of different parameters, but ultimately medications are psychiatrist's choice. Okay. All right. Thanks. Yes. I have a question for Jonathan. Oh, gosh. Yes. About student advocacy. I wanted you to give me an idea of what that should look like. If I have an advocate come to school to help me advocate for my child. My, my son has ADHD, ODD, SPD, and anxiety. And we're having a whole lot of problems we've had for a long time. But anyway, so um, my experience so far has been, I've been working with an advocate, but um, thinking down the road, ADHD looking for a new one. Um, because I currently find that mine is not much better. <laughs> So the question is, what, what should so good educational advocacy look like? Well, you have a great educational advocate sitting in front of you, actually. So, um, But I uh, really and truly, I think that a good advocate is somebody that comes into the room. And, and I heard this saying from um, a great attorney who passed away a couple years ago, way before his time. His name is Brooke Whitted. But he said, 
When you walk into a room, he you want to. Well, yeah, he did. Yeah, he did, unfortunately. But sorry if you're this. Oh. Yeah. You just heard just now? I didn't know that he So he said, you want to, we're all running Chevy, not a Cadillac, when you walk into the room. And you want to be reasonable, and you want to be fair, and you want to hear what people have to say. You know, there's advocates. And actually, we had a meeting last week. That's why I laugh at this. Uh, we, you want an advocate that comes in the room who, who tells you what, you know, what a fair part of the process is, is not someone that's going to go in there and fight. You, know, you want them to say, ah, I get this from the school. I get that. No, that's not what you want. You have to work with schools. You have to hear what schools have to say. And really through that whole process, you have to say, okay, how do you feel that we should handle this? And when they say something like every third grader acts your third grader acts differently than other third graders. Ask the question, what does every other third grader act like? And what does mine act like? And what are things that you recommend that you can do to have my third grader act more like the age-appropriate, grade-appropriate thing? So to answer your question, you want someone who knows the system, who understands what setting effective goals and writing good IEPs looks like, who understands how to, how to work the room where they don't create an adversarial situation. And I have seen advocates do that that have made the process so much worse. So... Those are the kinds of things you want to know. Does that answer your question? <laughs> Can I piggyback on that? Also, I think, because I've ran IEP meetings, you need to have someone know what your rights are as a parent. And also, the gatekeeper for an educational system is testing. Well, so I'm when, actually a very informed parent about what my rights are. Um, I'm also in the medical field. I have actually pretty extensive knowledge in the short time that I've been at this. Um, so in terms of advocating my child, I actually do a really good job. But I feel like if I'm bringing a professional that I'm hiring okay, into this situation to help me, you know, I kind of feel like so far they you know, just haven't contributed much. Um, so kind of my question is then, what is realistic for me to be expecting from that person? What should I be expecting from that professional that I brought in to try to help me? Um, and so far, I really feel like the professional hasn't contributed much. I've done everything and done all. Well, that's. I would say that again. And I know we got we got yeah. lightning around here, but real quick, I would say <laughs> that the most important thing is you want them to make sure that that they have you as prepared as possible for the meeting. That they script the meeting out for you that they go over things like what are good goals, what are things you should look for, those kinds of things. I'm happy to talk to you more. I know, again, we're trying to get to a bunch of questions. And again, you have a great resource right in front of you. So. OK. Um, <laughs> sure, one question. question. Go ahead. Um, it seems like after a period of time, the medication is working, but it's wearing off. They get acclimated. They get acclimated. We can make time for that question. That's a good yep, one. Yep, that's a great question. Yeah. What's really going on? So the question was about someone being on medication and acclimating to it. And by acclimating, what do you mean? It's wearing off. What do you mean by wearing off? medication at 7 o'clock in the morning, and it worked till 2 o'clock. Now, now the school is saying that about 11.30 it's sweet. So it used to work over a certain window, but now it's become less effective. Right. Um, so there, that's a complicated question. There's lots of possible answers. The most common scenario there is that medication over time is just not being adequately dosed. And so the dosage may not be high enough. You know, a lot of medications say optimally will work over a certain time course, especially we're talking about stimulants here mostly. Um, and there's different situations. In some situations, if it doesn't last that long, it means it's underdosed. And in some situations, if it doesn't last that long, it means it never would last that long in that individual 
because it's a really fast processor of medicine and it doesn't matter what you do. So that has to be sorted out. But usually it has to do with this idea that the dose isn't high enough. And hopefully if you get to an appropriate dose, that would not keep happening. This has been Eric Tivers, and I want to thank you for listening and congratulations for making it to the end. ADHD Rewired is more than just a podcast. We are a community focused on learning, growing, and connection. The website is ADHDrewired.com. You can find summaries and additional resources for each episode, learn more about the ADHD Rewired Coaching and Accountability Group, and more. It's all at ADHDrewired.com. Don't just be a passive listener. Be an active member of the community. Submit your request to join our free and growing community on Facebook. Watch for a message from me on Facebook because I screen everyone before they come in the group. Podcasts do change lives. You can make a difference in someone's life by spreading the word about this podcast. Share it online or share it with a friend. If you're a member of Chad or any other ADHD support group, let people know about this show. And if you really loved this episode, please hit share on your podcast player. One of the biggest things you can do to support this podcast and help other people discover it is to leave an honest rating and a review on iTunes or Stitcher. If you can't figure out how to do it, message me on Facebook or through my website and I'll be happy to walk you through it. Looking for more ways to listen and learn? Get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at Audible by using my affiliate link at audibletrial.com slash ADHD Rewired. Not sure where to start? Start with Brene Brown's The Gift of Imperfections or her six-hour recorded workshop, The Power of Vulnerability. This is Eric Tivers reminding you that when you spend time to plan, you will save time that you could spend later. Until next time.